This is Aliens and Artists, part two of our conversation with Sebastian Siegel. We can go to any city and look at some, whether it's a painting on a cave wall or Michelangelo and, and this spectacular painting and say, oh my God, something's being channeled here. And that electrical current is everywhere. Do we have time just to sing one, the chorus of calling occupants from interplanetary? <laughs> <laughs> calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary. But I love that you brought up Karen Carpenter. Karen Carpenter is one of the great loves of my life. I recorded five or six records in the room where she recorded that song. For people who don't know Henson Studios, it was previously A&M Records. There are sound stages, production facilities, seven or eight world-class studios. I'll tell you a funny story. It's peripherally germane to what we've been discussing. And it took place at Henson Studios. So before it was Henson, before it was A&M Records, it was Charlie Chaplin's original production lot. This is where Charlie Chaplin actually cut all of his films. He used that sound stage to shoot much of what people would recognize in his work today. They still have all of his stuff there. Original buildings, his original office, the vault where they would store his film, because film prints at that time were highly flammable. His footprints are in the cement there. I love Charlie. Having worked on that lot for 15 years, there's something to be said for the infusion of soul into artifacts. A great example being Charlie Chaplin's cutting table. They still have the actual physical cutting table that he cut all of his films on. It's pockmarked. It looks like it was used for a hundred years. It's this massive, thick, wooden table. And I have obsessed about that table. So, one night I'm working late, I walk down to the table, start fiddling with it, examining it. I pull open a drawer and I find that one of the boards is loose. I take that board and shove it into my pants, and I hustle back to the studio where I'm working in a vocal booth. I slide the wood into my bag, and I think, I got it. I'm going to take this home, and I'm going to carve gifts from it for my film friends. We're going to have Charlie Chaplin totemic art. I go to stand under the microphone, to begin singing, and the only lighting in this room is track lighting. There are four lights right above my head on one track. I step to the microphone and distorted static fills my headphones just Then, three out of four of the track lights go dark. The one light that's directly over my head stays on and pulses, on and off. You don't need to be an electrician to understand that you can't turn down three out of four lights on a track system. That doesn't exist. You can turn down four. You can turn up four. They function as one light, but three lights go dead, in my case, and one light begins to pulse on and off. I will tell you, a wave of panic washed over my body. I unmistakably knew what the message was. I saw what you just did. I don't know if it was Charlie, but something, someone caught me. Goosebumps over every pore of my body. Anyone who works at Henson knows it's haunted. It's one of the most famously haunted studios in the world. Karen Carpenter being one of the famous ghosts. They had to bring in a massive crystal the size of three human heads to placate her because equipment kept malfunctioning. The studio would not reliably operate. They brought in mediums. They advised a massive crystal be placed on a wall. It was. The studio returned to a semblance of normality after that. Anyway, I'm paralyzed in fear and guilt. I turn the lights down. I turn them back up. Three shut off. One remains on. I sit down and I meditate. And I convey sincerely to this presence that I get it. I took that board. What you need to get is that I love Charlie. I'm taking this board in reverence. I want to create sacred objects with it. This is not some school-age hooliganism. These will be holy relics to all the people that I give them to. And I need to work now. And you're scaring the shit out of me. So please step away. If this is workable to you, let me stand up 
and do my work. We'll just put this behind us. I stand up, turn all four lights on, step to the microphone. It works again. The lights function normally, and I go back to work. I kept the board. I still have it. That's a Charlie Chaplin ghost story. I suppose it's the only ghost story I have from my whole life. Oh, my Lord. I'm going to go to Siona's house tonight and steal it. You should. It can be a baton that we pass to each other. There's this interesting thing that you subtly conveyed there about kind of karmic electrical current also. If you just went in there and you just needed a board and you stole it, nothing would occur. Like if you weren't aware whose desk it was or yeah. what it was, right? And it only occurs because you're awake and aware of this energy in this electrical field beyond time that you're responding to it so it means something to you in other words you are privy to the language and are available to the message and i think that's the confounding thing for so many people about having extraterrestrial ufo otherworldly other types of intelligence experiences is that it, it comes well it's like when people say well the, the the teacher shows up when the student's ready it's like that with any message right you can't tell anyone anything that they don't already know uh, <laughs> yeah and you can't yeah. show it to them unless they've already seen it right you know and so it's a that's quite a predicament right and so that you know where the salt and the sugar comes in and we have to be something has to elicit a response and that's why love is so gloriously painful yes. but it has to bump us and rub us in certain ways for our own becoming you know to allow that i remember we shot a scene of just be yourself in in henson and i think kanye west was there that day right and he had he like was some insane car when you were describing discussing the thing about charlie chaplin you know in your experience and so many Karen Carpenter and all the, the beautiful albums that you've recorded to Henson Studios. And I, I was thinking about Rupert Sheldrake, you know, all his work on morphic resonance. And for yeah. people who are listening, who are interested in, in this and in Joe Rogan and, and other discussions in this way, Rupert Sheldrake has a, a, an amazing TED Talk about morphic resonance, which is, I believe, a banned TED Talk, but you can still look it up. But this essential sense of space carrying a resonance a force field essentially that reaches beyond time or through time as a mechanism through time of course the way that we look at any pattern that a drop falls and in this thing echoes outwards or the way that sound moves and the way that depending on the room or the space we're in sound has completely different properties I mean, in my home, I've had a number of piano concerts here, and my ceiling is vaulted, and it's wall-to-wall, ceiling-to-floor glass, and if the, if the windows are open or closed, or depending on where I'm sitting in the room, if there's 20 people or 60 people in the room, the piano concert is entirely different experience, the way yeah. the sound resonates, not just in, in, in these hairs in my ear, but in my body. You know, the total experience is completely different. So, yeah. of course, right, of course I'm going to be able to pick up on – I have this dog whistle more specifically that I keep next to, I have, I think it's by my bed or in the kitchen. And I originally got it because I thought if there's an earthquake and I'm buried underneath all this cement and you see after earthquakes, people are looking for who's buried and who survived. And they're looking with dogs because a lot of times people can't yell or they're 50 feet down and they're, but dogs can smell and hear. And I thought I'm going to keep this dog whistle just in case of an earthquake because I live in California. Yeah, because if I'm buried underneath all the cement, I'll blow that dog whistle, and then they'll be like, "All oh, these dogs are on this one spot," you yeah. know. You know, I thought this is a pretty good idea, and I tell people that they're like, "What's this dog whistle for? You don't have a dog." And I blow it, and no one can hear it. Only a dog can hear it. Dogs in the hallway will go nuts if I blow. It's ridiculous, you know. I mean, well, nothing is more ridiculous than people coming out of people. <laughs> I could not concur more. Nothing is more ridiculous. We have such a wealth. I mean, we're such an ironic creature in the way that we have such, like, if we looked at ourselves from another form of intelligence, we're so funny and ironic. Like, all this brilliant landscape of art and media uh, that we have, whether it's cave walls or movies, almost exactly predicting decades ahead what the world will look like, whether it's 2001 Space Odyssey or the one where they go to 2010, which I love with uh, the one where they go to Jupiter. Mm -hmm. uh, I just thought that film is brilliant. The use of sound in that film, it just 
blows me away. You know, or Blade Runner with Harrison Ford. Just the number of, you know, media and songs that articulate where we're going and we're articulating that through our own tuition. So how can we, through these experiences, whether it's looking at a craft outside of our living room or having a deep, profound, mystical dream, having a state experience that's so powerful and get excited about it, get excited about it in a way to say, I'm open to seeing it all day, every day. When I go to the market today, when I go for a walk, when I do anything, I'm really going to be available. When I lay down in bed and I take my breath and I feel myself drift off, I'm going to really allow this mystical experience to occur. For anyone who's listening, if they've made it this far, they're game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if not, or if they're just you know, dropping in now, what's the alternative? The alternative is at some juncture, you're going to take the last breath in this life. And if you could come back to any one of these moments, you would have wished that you had. And if you don't, you'll be like, fuck, I hope I can do this in the next life. Because there's only one instant left, yeah, to open our eyes. To put a cliche bow on it, Albert Einstein says, the moment we can no longer look around and stop and stand in rapture, in awe. At that moment, our eyes are already closed. We are already dead. And he talks so much and writes so much about creativity being so much more important than intelligence because creativity is the ability to be dexterous and open to any kind of miracle, to evaluate how fast does light move? And what does it mean, the speed of light? And what's really going on? You know, he comes up with so much of his theory when he's riding his bicycle, trying to pretend to be light. And so if that's the hardest science, if that's the benchmark of science, if one of these architects of the benchmarks of science is saying the ultimate requisite is being open to the ridiculousness of the entire miracle, well, yeah. we ought to start doing that every single day. I love your invocation of people coming out of people, because by extension, the next natural property we see is this ceaseless creativity which is all there ever has been. Everything that's ever been ushered forth in the cosmos, planets, people, but also the big within, the interior of the cosmos. As we're fond of saying on this podcast, the universe is even bigger on the inside. People coming out of people is also creativity coming out of creativity. Not only does the cosmos create as its fundamental principle, but it creates creators. It's a Russian nesting dolls of infinite creativity. Regarding non-human entities, perhaps they find an aesthetic cosmology gratifying because it's closer to their native lexicon. Their communication is their being. There's a stilted modulation for them, even in a telepathic mode of communication. There can be a demotion of expressive capacity for them just in interacting with us. The menu shrinks. The items become less appetizing. We need to get on the inside, the big within, within ourselves and within these entities. That's where the relationship is. They're trying to do that. These experiences, be they what you witnessed outside your house or what I encountered inside my house, these experiences are knocking on our inner doors. It's my personal conviction that they're hoping we're going to rise to the occasion and become somebody that they can have a meaningful relationship with. This is a fun segue into an idea you and I kicked around. Taking a survey of what disclosure may feel like at five different altitudes of consciousness, five different worldviews. Let's do that now. Should we give it a kick? Wow. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm game for anything. Okay. Can we sing the Karen Garvey song? I, <laughs> Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. <laughs> you know, um, the statement there, I have great appreciation and respect for your bringing a personal responsibility and offering up a personal responsibility, discipline for people to say, being here and the uh, proliferation of life and the experience of duality is for the fun of intimacy. 
Mm -hmm. that come together. And so we seek out ways to get to know ourselves through other entities and allow other people to get to know themselves through us, right? That's the driving factors, uh, driving force in a relationship. We want to see and be seen. And we want to have a new experience. We want to inhabit new terrain within our own selves through another being. And that means a lover, friend, family, and the existence of all phenomenon. Right? We look at a flower and we smell it to experience something within ourselves. Yeah, A flower has an experience as well. We are an aspect of this greater dynamic experience. And I like the way you put a personal responsibility to it to say something is seeking attention, is seeking a dialogue, is seeking an interaction. And intuitively, it can feel that there is a resonance coming from this planet from the entities and the intelligence, the currents that are being felt, woven, percolating out from individuals and life forces here. It's curious about that. that there are two electrical forces that want to touch. It's our responsibility, not just for ourselves to be open to it, but it's our responsibility to engage in it. It'd be like if you're on one side of the stream and someone that's saying, hello, hello, hello. Yeah. You'd have to say your natural, everyone's natural impulse. If they were lost in the mountains and they heard that, they would go, hello, yeah. hello, hello. <laughs> and it may be really far away and it may be really hard to interpret. And we may not know who is doing the calling or what is the saying, but we have to follow it. And it's absolutely our responsibility because there is nothing else going on other than that. <laughs> that is life itself. Yeah, so true. Before we dive into disclosure according to altitudes, there's one other item I had ruminated on in anticipation of our conversation. It's tethered to your movie Grace and Grit. There's this moment in Grace and Grit where Treya is receiving treatment for cancer. Someone communicates to Treya that she's at fault for having cancer. That the reason she has cancer is because she has the wrong mindset. She brought it on herself. The New Age notion that thought creates reality and your bad attitude created your cancer, that happens in these realms as well. You will find people saying, if you're having negative experiences with non-human entities, that's because you're a negative person. You're attracting it with your negative vibes. If you're having positive experiences, it's because you're a positive person. Now, first of all, if you're having positive experiences with ETs, fantastic. That's what I want for you. That's what I wish for everyone. But I know hundreds of abductees, and I can assert with great confidence they are not attracting their experiences with their attitude. Their emotional disposition does not determine the nature of contact. It's painfully insulting to people whose lives have been turned upside down, who've experienced trauma, to then heap on top of it that somehow the insufficiency of their attitude has caused entities from God knows where to take them, harvest biological material, create hybrid beings, causing a great deal of trauma. Before we go to the next piece, I wanted to touch in with you on this notion that an individual's personality has that degree of force and influence on galactic reality. Well, man, you know, I shot a scene, I shot that exact scene from the book on the phone, and they're in separate rooms, and Trey's on the phone, and this woman is saying, essentially, it's your responsibility, it's your fault, I sense this from you, etc. And earlier in the story, in, in their progression, in their relationship, it would have upset her, but not him. And then later, he becomes so protective of her. And it no longer upsets her, it upsets him. I think they're already at a place where they can intuit what's going to occur. But they're still engaged fully in the process of saying, let's see what all we can do, let's do all we can do. But they've already, she's already reached that point of passionate equanimity. And so he's really disturbing. He comes in, you know, he just cusses her out, right? The woman on the phone saying, you fucking out of line, you know? Like, how dare you? How dare you put this on someone? Not just out of his protection for her, but out of his disgust for that kind of ultra-conventional reductionism. I ended up cutting the scene <laughs> because 
I wanted to make a movie under two hours, at least the first take. The, the director's cut will be seven hours. <laughs> the director's cut will be two and a half, probably, which will come out at a later juncture, you know, for people who love the book and really want to get more into integral and want to go through that process more and more and more. I cut that scene, but I, the modus operandi of the film is to, in a lot of ways, juxtapose what's happening with what's really going on. Right. And the plot is, you know, whatever's happening there, you know, boy meets girl, girl gets as a challenge, gets ill and then the relationship falls apart. There's a reconciliation and then there's sort of death with transcendence. But the theme of what's really going on is that there is this lure of love and this intuitive pull of information and force. And we all, of course, want to have a nice day. We want it to be sunny out. We want it to feel good. But that's not what drives us. Uh, that's not what the best thing for our own becoming. The best thing for our own becoming is a broad array of stimulus, a broad array of textures and terrains and experiences. That's what makes the most delicious cake. So I think that the mission in that film is this experiential process to make people feel responsible, sad, ashamed, hopeful, and relieved, and liberated. There's no liberation if we're not already holding our breath. If we're already deep breathing, there's not as much of a liberation from that as there is from... <laughs> That's a different kind of liberation, right? Yeah, and that's yeah. the liberation I'm trying to drive in that film. But I think you do in, in so much of your music, gorgeous ways that you're doing here uh, with this discussion. I'd love to hear you just do the meeting at where it's at, this exercise. I want you to chime in. <laughs> okay. Your integral theory is hotter and more precise than my own. I'm a dropout. The idea here is that there's a migration underway in the mainstream media right now toward disclosure. Multiple serious articles in the New York Times, Scientific American, Joe Rogan devoting multiple episodes to it, Tucker Carlson on Fox News, over and over, the Navy, the Pentagon. It's really a sea change of sorts underway. What we don't hear, aside from someone like Sean Esbjorn Hargens, is a vertical developmental view of what disclosure would look or feel like at various developmental worldviews. So, Let's look at five different worldviews and tour what disclosure may look and feel like to each of them, respectively. Let's also do a healthy, sick version at each altitude. And by the way, I am not advocating for a particular altitude. They are all part of our inheritance as human beings. They are all us. It's like asking which of the kids would you like to keep? All of the kids. We want, to keep, we want to keep all of the kids. We need all of the altitudes. I just have to say that because people get funny about this. I'm also not going to go into definitions of what constitutes each altitude and worldview. Google developmental worldviews. So, imagine you're on an elevator. You are about to visit five unique floors in a building we'll call human development. These five floors are magic, mythic, rational, pluralistic, and integral. Each floor is a worldview. Each worldview is a way of experiencing and interpreting reality, including UFOs, aliens, and perhaps one day the disclosure that they are real and they are here. Let's start by taking the elevator to the magic worldview. Beginning with the magical worldview, on the positive side, I could really see Disclosure being a re-enchantment of reality. From this magical altitude of consciousness, there is an existing familiarity with high strangeness. Disclosure, if it were to include enough of the high strangeness, enough of the non-ordinary experience, could actually be a vindication of sorts at this altitude. In the phenomenon, we have entities walking through walls, levitation of bodies by unseen forces, Teleportation, telepathy, downloads, channeling, dozens of hallmarks of the liminal that natively runs through the magical world view. On the negative side of the magical world view, as an example in Africa, albino human beings are murdered 
so that their organs can be harvested for use in magical rituals. And that haunted, sinister side of this altitude of consciousness is what could lead to some scary potentialities for not only the non-human entities, but for experiencers in general, by proxy. I want to pause and invite you to share, Sebastian. The, um, you know, I think about that on a primal level and just uh, man's first experience with fire, being able to see, uh, witness fire or create fire and the magic of what's possible and looking at that awesome flame. And then on the dark side, the wickedness of what that flame can do. Great analogy. It's easy to conceive of disclosure as the next order of fire arriving. Moving on, let's take the elevator to the mythic worldview. On the plus side of the mythic, the Vatican has their own observatory. They have their own astronomers. They have a world-class library. They've already come out and said, listen, it's cool. There are probably aliens. It's fine. We can baptize them, and they are welcome to join the Catholic Church. That's the big C in Catholic including all souls, human or even non-human. Also, at this mythic altitude, we have members of our own government who believe that all non-human intelligences are demonic. The craft, the entities, the phenomena, they're all demonic. On the downside, this imperialistic gesture of baptizing non-human entities into the Catholic Church is perhaps a telling sign that we have not matriculated to a galactic perspective. It's expansionism. Our initial move being, we're going to convert you to our religion. I don't have a dog in that race. I wouldn't be excited if it were Buddhist doing this either. Might be better for us to begin by listening. Oh, I'm going to stay with the fire analogy, describing what the human impulse is out of both fear and hope and desire. And stay with that with the fire also is that the next impulse is, after we get over the awe of the fire, it's that, what can we do with this? The upside of that, man says, wow, we can cook food. We can keep warm. We can create community. And then on the downside of that, we can destroy. We can kill. We can torture. We can hurt. It becomes a utility. Once again, our elevator lurches into motion so that we can next visit the rational worldview a rational altitude of consciousness. On the healthy side, a true scientist would swoon at the prospect of all that we don't know, which is to say, all that lies before us to discover. This incomprehensible disparity, this disjunction between something like a tic-tac craft or the craft that you, Sebastian, saw outside of your apartment contrasted with our airplanes and rockets. That could create an amazing, rational, empirical invitation to a wholly other order of facility with technology. That's the plus side for the rational altitude. The downside is the rude awakening, which awaits for materialists or stringent empiricists, reductionists, anyone who prefers that objects stay objective. Going back to the doubleness that Sean S. Bjorn Hargens has elucidated, doubleness, paradox, high strangeness, liminality, altered states, all of that which refuses to yield to the purview of objective study. Materialists will be confounded and frustrated. Their allergies are going to have a paroxysm. The Seth Shostaks of the world are going to have a very hard time with high strangeness. Because we're not just dealing with entities and craft, we're dealing with intelligences that operate in ecosystems and with privileges that we can't even begin to conceive of. It's a very steep learning curve at this altitude in that regard. How about you? The next stage in fire is making the recognition, looking at it, and then looking at our own sun and saying, okay, we are able to duplicate something here that exists out there. I can feel similar phenomenon, the heat of this fire as I feel in the day. When I feel it on my skin, I feel the heat of the fire from the sun. I know that it can hurt. I can't 
open my eyes and stare at the sun. It hurts, it burns. We have been able to yield something that is way out there, that is very powerful and recreate it here and now. There are enormous positive potentials here. We have figured out something. Are you talking about the nuclear weapon? Still, I think just fire. Just that recognition. I mean, using it as an analogy, we have discovered science. We have discovered the capacity to articulate things anew, to take text from life and apply it from life. Mm. What, what is the power there? The dark side of that is the grandiosity that comes with that. Ah, yeah. we can duplicate the sun. The dystopian culture that proliferates from that kind of grandiosity is we can now harvest animals. We can now duplicate human beings. We mm. can clone everything. We can yeah. create the world that we want. The yep. sun is out there. The fire is out there. The fire is here and now. We've done it. We can do it all. We are all knowing and all powerful. Now, elevator, take us to the pluralistic worldview. Pluralistic worldview. This altitude is really interesting in regards to disclosure, because in many important ways of all the altitudes, The pluralistic has brought the most intelligent and constructive response to the presence of non-human entities. Here we find a population of human beings who recognize that this is real and they've just gotten on with the work of what to do about it. What's an appropriate response? We see a florid explosion of many responses, including channeling, conducting CE5, collective meditation, bringing in craft. Most of the books have come from this altitude. All the big conferences, support groups, radio shows, podcasts, including, to a great degree, psychological and spiritual tools that have been developed to help experiencers. Also, modes of inquiry into the phenomena. This is a locus for many or most of the seekers, the interiorists. People drilling for the deeper meaning of it all. At this point, they're the leading edge of the inner revolution. And I find the most hope at this altitude on the healthy side. The downside, the negative of the pluralistic altitude, includes the idea that we spoke of earlier. That if you have a negative attitude, you could attract negative experiences. As though the cosmos repatterns itself according to the frontal structure of individual human beings. Not true. Good people have bad experiences. Bad people have good experiences. We don't know why. Also at this altitude, the disowning of the higher self, the demotion of the spiritual endowment of a human being in order to project the higher self onto these non-human entities. As though just because these intelligences exhibit a great facility with technology that somehow they deserve to be assigned superior spiritual status. I personally don't see any evidence that we should be forfeiting our power and depth as human beings. I also feel the best of these entities do not want that either. Would you rather be friends with a five-year-old or a deeply evolved, sophisticated being? It's a no-brainer. That's where the love and the meaning is. At this pluralistic altitude, the downside is this idea that aliens are here to save us. They're our space brothers. They're going to stop nuclear wars. I hope all that's true, but I don't believe our salvation comes from the visitors. The visitors don't want that job. They would prefer for us to claim our rightful place as galactic spiritual beings to become wonderful neighbors. I actually get sad when I see someone diminish themselves deferentially because they have contact with a non-human intelligence. As in, oh, they're telepathic. They must be enlightened. Some of what telepathic beings do is awful. That's true, too. So that's the risk I see at this altitude. Handing over our power. Wow, that's beautifully expressed. I like the way that you demand the personal responsibility of saying, just because my kids are beautiful doesn't mean they're kind or smart. Just because my parents or my friends or my tribe to jump out of that very self-centered expectation and demand on other entities, however they show up, whether it's familial or extraterrestrial. I think that's akin to 
making the leap where science intersects with poetry and with art of saying, well, okay, the fire is here, it's there in the sun, and it's actually coming from all of these stars. And some of these stars don't exist anymore, and yet the light is still coming from there. And wow, what's possible? We are a part of these stars. We are part of this fire in some way. The beauty and the possibility of that, and then of course the danger again is that grandiosity from that worldview to say, oh, well, we are now all powerful. If we are the greatest intelligence in the cosmos. From the Big Bang, everything extrapolated outward, and here we are, the wisest, most complex thing that exists out there, that we are this fire, we are this light, and we are the only ones that are looking around. We are the only witness, and we know, and everything that comes into our field of knowing and field of awareness is because we are welcoming it in. You know, we were here first. <laughs> you, know, that, you know, that classically human, at least American, thing to put a flag somewhere. That's the scariest thing, to put a flag of thought. really goes back to thinking about American Indians and the confusion with settlers. Of saying, wait a second, we own this land. And they're saying, wait, what? You yeah. own the land? What yeah. are you talking about? You can't own land. That's where it really becomes the scary part in the conversation. It's right next to the super healthy part of the conversation. Now, let's head to the integral worldview. At this next altitude, I'm just going to say integral and beyond. So this is to include all second tier and beyond altitudes in one bundle for the sake of convenience. The healthy aspect of this altitude is real simple. It's that the most incredible toolbox in human history is available at this altitude. That's what we should be bringing to bear on these mysteries. These are transrational mysteries. The integral worldview is the first altitude where the transrational toolbox comes online. I often lament the Groundhog Day phenomenon of each altitude using frustrated, one-dimensional tools over and over to address a multi-dimensional mystery. Methodological pluralism, that big toolbox, that's what we should employ. All wisdom traditions, all technologies, all lineages, be they academic, scientific, spiritual, psychological, social, anthropological, everybody at the table. We need to be at second tier and beyond in each of these respective domains. A symphony not a cacophony. And that's what Integral has to offer. And importantly, it includes the not knowing that we spoke of earlier. The sick part at this altitude and beyond is that there's been a great delay and failure to respond from the Integral community. I'm not going to name names. It's not helpful. But 20 years ago, I attempted to repeatedly arrange meetings between John Mack and Integral leaders of the world. John Mack was willing, the integral leaders were not. John Mack, of course, Harvard psychiatrist, leading abduction researcher. He asserted the abduction phenomenon was not attributable to psychopathology. Experiencers present with symptoms of trauma. I could not get the integral leadership on board at that time. I'm happy to report that that's changed. There are integral figures coming forward in some numbers and engaging now. However, I think we lost a lot in those intervening decades in neglecting to take the lead or at least provide a passionate presence. Those spaces were soon filled, often by undesirable figures. To end on a good note, Sean Asbjorn Hargens and numerous others are making great strides to catch Integral up to the reality and the gravity of these enigmas. I've also been working one-on-one -on -one with some precocious promising integral kids. I can report that the future is very bright where they are concerned. That was really beautifully expressed, especially the <sighs> irony of the paradox of the dark side of what can potentiate from any structure. You know, obviously on the up, the same thing like coming from the origin of fire. I think that our mystical stage of awareness of saying, well, we not just are the, this fire, but we, in some way, this ultra-intelligence, the big S self, created it. In other words, that we're here having this experience of duality, 
for the fun of it. We've breathed life into the cosmos. Not we as humans, but we, us, self, as this mystical origin coming into duality for the purpose of communication and holding that sacred, holding that deeply sacred, just like the I-thou relationship. We're looking at in the eyes of a dog or say a supernova or our friend or our lover and saying, wow, there's a miracle going on here. We are so fortunate. There's this miracle that is happening on a moment-to-moment basis that's coming into being that some deeper, greater knowing of our own selves, of which we are able to just glimpse at, touch upon, that kind of awareness that we intuited, we're part of that impulse to come into being, that light, that fire. And we can see it in the simple fire here and now, we can see it in the stars beyond, and we can feel it deep inside, Mm. and how rich and fertile it is with hope for any conversation and any possibility and any becoming. It seems to me, fundamental to what it is to have a, an integral perspective, possibility yeah. of the miracle. And then on the dark side, it's not a grandiosity because that's at the last level. It's perhaps a choreography. And I think about this and the way you expressed it, the challenge there, and then also the way you compared it to the challenge with people being vocal about it and then also working with a number of kids, people who are just totally liberated and free, right? The rough thing about Tourette's is that when somebody is insulting someone, <laughs> the beautiful thing about Tourette's is when someone, you know, the rough thing is when someone says, God, you're an asshole, I can't stand you, or something, whatever, the, you're so blank and blank. But the beautiful thing about Tourette's is when someone says, oh my God, you're so beautiful, look at your beautiful eyes and your face. So I think in the same way, people will say about a president of any country now or 10 years ago or 100 years ago, they lie or whatever. Well, look, the job of the parent is not to tell the truth all the time to the children. Mm. You know, the job of the president is not to tell the truth to the people all the time because the people can't handle the truth. In other words, every great leader, whether it's of a family or of any collected entity, movement and consciousness, is to tell people in a way that they are ready to hear it. And so it's president of a nation. Every signature saves lives and kills people. Every signature. Being a general in war means, doesn't mean you care less for the people who die in battle, but you must keep moving forward. And so you hold that in a space and, and feel the pain at, at the juncture when you can. And so I bring this up as some sort of analogous expression to the challenge of an integral framework and sharing it is that it, it some things have to be spoken about through art and through poetry so that they don't get misconfused or reduced that the nature of transrationalism is that it oftentimes it, it has to greet different ears in different places and so the architect of that conversation of these conversations has to be graceful and dexterous so as not to alienate people and ultimately also to invite people in. And it can be very challenging. And I think about some of the great speakers, great leaders, great thinkers throughout history. Let's say in in Christianity, who would talk about Moses and talk about Moses mythically, talk about stepping into the parting the sea, talking about going to the promised land. For individuals who are listening to any orator talk about Moses, for some recipients of that message, if they're at a magic or mythic or rational level, they have to interpret it actually for it to mean something to Mm -hmm. them. But if they are at a stage beyond that, they can process it in a way to apply it to their own life mystically. And so, of course, the danger in an integral framework of any experience and interaction discovery phenomenon is how do we share it? How we act as the parent and simultaneously as the student. And there are, of course, downfalls because of the nature of the limitations that we come into this world with. We have all of these senses and we're loaded with all of these capacities to reach out and to touch and to interpret and to feel and to define and make meaning of self-awareness and of transcendent experience and thought and being. And we can share that, you know, if we're holding our breath and we go 
And we're at the surface, we share it superficially with everyone. And if we drop down 10 feet below the surface, there's a lot of people that can drop down 10 feet that we can share it with. And the water is the same at the surface as it is at 10 feet, but the experience on the body is very different. And then down at 100 feet, it's the exact same water that's at the surface, but there are so few people at 100 feet. And we talk about the same water that we talk about at the surface, and yet it's a totally different kind of pressure and darkness at 100 feet. And then when we drop down to 200 feet or 300 feet or 500 feet or beyond, it's the exact same water that's at the surface. And yet the impact of that water circumstantially upon the experience is this type of pressure and this type of darkness. And within that darkness, there's this spectacular glimmer and white lining of light mm. where death is one moment away and rebirth is one moment away. And we, hold our breath because we don't need to breathe again. And yet simultaneously there's this impulse to just and accept drowning. And neither is right and neither is wrong at that level. They're both gorgeous. But the moment we start to advise to any experiencer of this water from that level back up to the surface, we are saying this is the way water is. Even with that glimpse of the knowledge and the power of that water, that same water that's at the surface, we are not able to articulate it. <laughs> we have to coax people in in the way, same way that love coaxes us into our own transformation. I want to thank you so much for having me here today, Stu. There is a lineage through integral that relates to all of these individuals. And, you know, there's, a, there's an ongoing conversation that I see woven into so many works. I think like so many people, when they read Ken's work or listen to a great song or see a great, see Michelangelo's art, we feel less alone in the world. We feel like, oh, we're communicating with something. And it's that is this exact discussion about how are we going to communicate with life that we're not aware of? How are we going to communicate with life forces that are foreign to us? Who built the pyramids? Raimondo Corona. That's who. Raimondo Corona built the pyramids. Well, one pyramid to be precise, but still, that's one more than me. In the arid region of Monclova, Mexico, near the U.S. border, Raimondo erected a 20-foot-tall architectural oddity, or wonder depending on your aesthetic leanings. According to Corona, an extraterrestrial entity named Haraleka from the constellation Orion ordered Corona to undertake the project. As to his countenance, Haraleka's eyes were a rich amber hue, while his hair was a bleached galactic flaxen. Haraleka hails from Nephilim, a world the size of 20 Earths. Raimondo was 33 when Haraleka first visited him. This emissary from Neflin compelled Raimondo to build the stone pyramid with his own hands. Raimondo quite reasonably asked, Why a pyramid? Haraleka responded, quote, Because it should be something like your faith, that winds and storms couldn't move and is always pointing upwards. End quote. Haraleka's timing in demanding Raimondo commence this mad construction couldn't have been better, because Raimondo's wife was days from giving birth. What relief she must have felt knowing her husband was toiling day in, day out to erect a geometrical monument for planet Neflin's bossiest project manager. Haraleka warned Raimondo Corona that people would laugh deride him, say he was crazy for building such an audacious edifice. Just ask I.M. Pei, and Gaudi, and Zaha Hadid. Corona, who again, built a fucking pyramid, reports the entity from Neflin has visited him in his dreams and in person. No word on whether or not the visitor is pleased with the final results of the stone structure. But, he did leave Ramunda with one other urgent message. Humans are destroying the world. Stop destroying your world. 
at least in Raimondo Corona's case, he left his little corner of the planet better than he found it. For more information on today's guest, go to SebastianSiegel.com or check the show notes, where you can also find original photos of his amazing UFO sighting. Aliens and Artist is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one work with me, Stuart Davis, on paranormal, creative, and spiritual issues. Go to theliminalmuse.com to book a session. Nicola Nicola 